Good morning. It's Friday, June 11th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. President Biden is in the UK today for the G7 summit. Under Trump, U.S. relationships with key allies were strained. So one of Biden's goals for this trip is to repair relationships. And two key topics of conversation are going to be China and Russia. Politico explains that getting Europe and the U.S. on the same page when it comes to China strategy is going to be difficult. For many European leaders, like French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, there's not a lot of appetite to take sides in a growing rift between the world's two biggest economies. For one, there is a sense that Europe should have its own China policy, not just follow America's lead. Also, China is an important export market for European businesses. Still, there's a lot of room for common ground. Political reports, Biden and EU leaders plan to introduce policies to respond to China's growth in 5G and artificial intelligence. This summit, it's also a forum to discuss alternatives to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Beijing has been investing billions building infrastructure in the developing world. The G7 summit is also notable for who's not involved. It used to be the G8 for a few years, but Russia was kicked out in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. Biden will meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin next week in Geneva. This week, he said America doesn't want conflict with Russia, but it won't hold back either. I've been clear. The United States will respond in a robust and meaningful way when the Russian government engages in harmful activities. We've already demonstrated that. I'm going to communicate that there are consequences for violating violating the sovereignty of democracies in the United States, in Europe, and elsewhere. Beyond the Biden-Putin meeting, CNN looks at how the future of U.S.-Russia relations also hinges on what happens at lower levels. These two former Cold War rivals have been in a tit-for-tat fight. Diplomats have been kicked out of each country. And right now, The situation is so strained that for several months, neither country's ambassadors have been in place. Biden and Putin might agree to return their ambassadors to Moscow and Washington, but that's only one step toward having a working relationship. If the countries don't have adequate teams on the ground, the basic work of diplomacy doesn't get done. As CNN puts it, right now, the Biden administration is trying to build a more steady diplomatic relationship with Russia. Part of that effort involves the administration hiring and promoting more people who have deep experience in Russia. Now, with relations tense and Russia on the move, the U.S. is going to need seasoned pros. There's this neighborhood called Christopher Todd Communities, and it's just outside of Phoenix. It looks like your typical subdivision. The houses have similar tile roofs and backyards with white fences. But there's one crucial difference between this and your average suburb. You can't buy any of these homes. You can only rent one, starting at $1,420 a month. This neighborhood is a built-to-rent suburb. And experts say you can expect to see a lot more of these in coming years. They're managed the same way most apartment buildings are. There's a staff that takes care of repairs and maintenance. The Wall Street Journal looks at the rise of the rental-only subdivision. Right now, estimates are that built-to-rent homes make up a little more than 6% of new houses built in the USA. 
But a real estate consulting firm predicts over the next few years, construction of this type of housing will double. One of the nation's largest home builders believes built-to-rent homes could eventually become half of its total business. The journal says there are two main forces driving this trend. One is economics. Home prices are going up faster than ever. And this is pushing more people toward renting, including people with higher incomes. The second force is generational. Real estate experts say that young professionals today are less inclined than the generation before them to want to commit to a 30-year mortgage. All of this means over the next 20 years, home ownership is expected to drop even further. Built-to-rent subdivisions could be an attractive option for people who want to move to the suburbs but don't want or can't afford to buy a house themselves. In this type of subdivision, you get the flexibility and amenities of renting and also the space of a suburban house without the same financial commitment. There's a few things standing in the way of these all-rental subdivisions. There's a shortage of buildable land, which is an issue for all types of housing developments, And there's also some opposition from local governments and homeowners. They tend to view rentals as bad for local property values. But so far, The Wall Street Journal says built-to-rent neighborhoods are only showing signs of growth. If you were able to work from home during the pandemic... Maybe you appreciated not having to drive a car or hop on a train every day to go to work. Now you might be facing that commute again with fresh eyes. Complaining about our commute is practically a national pastime. But maybe, just maybe, it's more important than we give it credit for. Commuting might actually help us maintain our work-life balance. There's a new piece in The Atlantic, and it argues people who are no longer commuting to work, they're missing something important. They have a sense of loss that's rooted in this idea that commutes create borders between our working and personal lives. Think about it for a second. In the time before the pandemic, how much differently did you act in the office compared to in your own living room? In psychology, there's something called boundary theory, which says we tend to have multiple selves, a work self and a home self. That trip to and from work helps you transition between these two very different roles. And researchers argue that transition is important. It's what keeps your different selves from bleeding into each other. As one Harvard business professor told The Atlantic, acting like a manager while you're at home can maybe strain your marriage. And acting like a parent while you're at work can get pretty weird. And for all the complaints you hear about commuting, this ritual is remarkably resilient. It goes back to ancient Rome. The earliest cities, they never got much larger than three miles in diameter. And a big reason was how far people could travel within a half an hour. Centuries later, trains and cars carry us faster and farther than horses. But the average commute time is nearly identical, 27 minutes each way. Humanity, it seems, can't quit the ritual that is the daily commute. Research from before the pandemic has shown that some people want a shorter commute, but very, very few people want no commute. And some even say they might want a longer ride to work. People say they like the feeling of being in control, having time to think, decompress, make a few phone calls, listen to an audiobook or a podcast. The commute does a lot more for us than just getting us physically to and from the workplace. It seems to transport us mentally as well. And even if you're going to keep working from home, 
workplace experts recommend building rituals at the beginning and end of the day. They simulate the benefits of commuting and can help prevent burnout. Things like taking a walk without your phone or, at the end of the day, try a little move that firmly says you've left the workplace. Don't just shut down your computer. In this piece, we meet one person who throws a thin blue cloth over his computer at the end of the day, and it's a sign that he and the machine are taking a break from each other. Can you relate? When it comes to the Northern Lights, the celestial phenomenon that's captivated humans for ages, scientists have had some ideas as to how it happens, but they've never known for sure until now. I've always wondered about the magic of those lights. (laughs) And now, a new University of California experiment provides some answers. NPR explains, scientists used a large plasma device to essentially recreate the Northern Lights in a lab. It's a kind of complicated thing to explain, but NPR does its best to lay it out in clear language. The sun affects the Earth's magnetic field in a way that creates these powerful cosmic waves. And that ripple effect can cause electrons to collide with gas in the Earth's atmosphere. That collision is what creates that light, the color, the blues, the greens. And what's really interesting about this experiment is scientists basically had the right idea all along. And now, they have the proof. They're hoping this research can help them understand the many ways solar activity affects the Earth. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. Plus, be sure to catch our new weekend interview show, In Conversation. Each episode, we go behind the scenes with the writers of the best stories out there. This week, I speak with Brian Burnson at Sports Illustrated. He profiled Ryan Lochte. If Lochte qualifies for the Olympics this summer, he's going to be the U.S.'s oldest ever men's Olympic swimmer. What a story. Enjoy that weekend listen. We'll be back with the news again on Monday. Monday.